Hello and welcome to the Life on This podcast, a no bullshit conversation about reimagining religion and remixing spiritual practices in a way that is secular and inclusive to all. Uh, that's uh, still a long intro, but I think it works. Uh, I'm your host, Sanson Jones, and today we won't be joined by uh, my co-host, James Croft, uh, though James will be back soon. He's returned from holiday. Uh, The two of us, James and I, have dedicated our lives to showing how anyone can have the benefits of a spiritual or religious life, even if they're not religious. I mean, we aren't religious. In 2013, I founded Sunday Assembly, a worldwide movement of non-religious congregations, and now I'm the director and co-founder of The Lifefulness Project. And James, he's the leader of the Ethical Society of St. Louis, one of America's largest humanist congregations. So this is what we're obsessed with. Early in 2020, I got in touch with James about writing a book on lifefulness, the practice that adapts the lessons of the spiritual community in a way that everyone can take part. He said yes. We then thought, why not turn all of our interviews and research into a podcast? And so that's what we're doing. Today, our guest is Guy Claxton, Emeritus Professor of the Learning Sciences at the University of Winchester. He's a cognitive scientist, the author of over 30 books, and a leader in the field of education. This guy is the best guy because all of that would be great on its own, but he also has this unique background as both a researcher and a balls-to-the-wall spiritual seeker. Uh, Have you seen Wild Wild Country, that crazy documentary about the cult in the 70s that went to Oregon and had Uzis and got in trouble with the feds and all that? Guy was part of the Rajneesh community in India, but got out before they went crazy in Oregon. The main reason I got Guy, this guy, the best guy, uh, I'll stop doing that now, is because he's an expert in embodied cognition. Now, embodied cognition is super important when trying to link ancient spiritual practices to modern knowledge. Embodied cognition is the idea that you think, feel and are with your body as much as your mind. And this talk will show how this talk, this conversation will show how this stuff isn't elite. It's not only academic or impractical. Uh, for instance, traders on the stock market who are more in touch with their bodies, with their embodied cognition, make more money. And on top of that, you'll learn what it was like in the Rajneesh community, what spirituality means to him, how these practices can stabilize into putting you into a sort of better state in your day-to-day and as ever there is a whole lot more. Hello Guy, Uh, how are you? Thanks so much for being our guest. Hi Sarnason, thank you very much, pleasure to be on. I'm very interested in um, being delightful. Oh, very good, very delightfulness, lifefulness, there will be... uh, uh, it will all be discussed today. And now, Guy, you have uh, had... Uh, uh, I actually hear your name a lot around my house because my wife is an educational uh, psychologist, and so you have uh, taken uh, 
a huge name in the uh, uh, education world for developing this idea of uh, activated learning. But then in the reason that I really wanted to speak to you is that you've also got a very, this amazing uh, sort of deep knowledge in the neuroscience, neurosciences, but then also uh, in the area of the real interest and experience and practice in the world of spirituality. And I've always found that in our conversations, we've been, I don't know, I've been able to have the sort of uh, the conversations at many interesting levels. I'm sure often in this uh, world, you'll just go and find out that sometimes you'll speak to someone you're like, oh no, you're a little too woo here, or you're, oh no, you don't quite get the spirituality part here, or at least yeah, in, this sure. is only my interpretation of all these yeah. things. Yeah. Uh, no, it's good. It's good when you meet people who match well enough, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's... Think, yeah. One of my teachers, a guy called Ram Das, used to talk about you know you you can recognise a mensch. I think it's a Jewish. Yeah, which is like sort of kindred kindred spirit kind of thing. So so, so we match. Well, certainly you as a family, and I we match on education. We match on cognitive science. We match on spirituality. But intriguingly, it's taken two normal humans to go and match your sort of uh, <laughs> your interests. So I'm really glad that as a pair, we're we're, we're good enough. Okay, uh, good. Just, we should we should have Imogen in in on this interview as well. Really, uh, that, then we can have the full set. That would be great. Uh, and just there, you just mentioned that you uh, worked with Ram Das, and so that's something that I really hope to get to. Uh, one of the, sure. the way we start off is by asking a question about what. Uh, was what was the sort of religious or spiritual or philosophical background of your childhood? Well, I my I was born and brought up the first bit of my life in North London in Finchley. My mum and dad were sort of regulation C of E Christians, but I think in those days not very active. But they did they sent me to Sunday school, and I can remember being sent, being allowed to go. It must have been about half a mile age six or seven just kind of just you know head off and walk on my own to sunday school and i or and, and i was now this is coming back to me now i was given a penny for the bus but i would i would spend the penny on chewing gum and um <laughs> in like you know one of those old-fashioned machines you put a penny in and you turn <laughs> the handle and you get the chewing gum and then and then i'd walk um so that was the, that that was the beginnings and then i was at a very churchy school that was attached to Worcester Cathedral. I was actually, my first marriage was in Worcester Cathedral. Mm. So yeah, that was my background. And it didn't mean much to me at all. You know, I remember going to Sunday school and I enjoyed getting, there was very sort of glamorous stickers that you could get and put in a book every time you showed up. It was a bit like sort of, you know, co-op stamps or green stamps or something mm. like that. But there was supposed to be, I think, a degree of salvation was attached to having having got a full book um you're probably more likely to go to heaven if you <laughs> it's amazing if you've got stickers or medals or badges you are yeah. halfway to having some sort yeah. of like a dictatorship or cult you can get a yeah. lot done with those absolutely absolutely so then i mean to make a very long story slightly shorter i was doing my defil at oxford and i fell in with some people who were doing human development um, encounter groups, you know, it was a sort of turbulent time in my life. My first marriage was was breaking down, and I was ready for a bit of personal growth. 
mm. which was, you know, I'd never had any of that kind of stuff before in my background. I was always sort of celebrated for being clever and mature when I was 15 years old, but sort of emotional emotional intelligence was not anything that had troubled me um, up till then. So I fell in with this crowd of people, and then they all started one by one. The kind of group leaders who I who were I admired and who were leading me into emotionally interesting and challenging places. They all started disappearing to India and coming back wearing orange clothes and wearing a funny necklace around their necks and and with a with a with a new name. And gradually I got drawn in to what was then the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, later Osho circle. So, mm. you know, that was that was a kind of that was a sort of, you know, high high spots and low spots on my practical spiritual development. The uh, and so in case if there's some people who are listening to this who might not have just clicked uh, onto that, the you've Wild Wild Country is the documentary which then made Rajneesh and Rajneesh Puram suddenly a, a huge topic of conversation. It must have been a year and no two years ago probably. These yeah like. something like that. Yeah. And and so there's so much to get into there. Uh, could you just even talk about like what encounter groups were because that's something which I've gone and heard a lot about I've seen the films as a part yeah. of me when thinking about okay what are some ways to go and you know bring these ideas into new forms because at the moment that's not really a part of the culture you know these sorts of groups sure. not in a mainstream way yeah so no, just talk me through not. like like your first encounter group a typical encounter group what was that like Sure. Well, this was, you have to remember, this was like in the late 70s when I when I was doing all this stuff. I moved to London in from Oxford in 1974 and fell in with this crowd of people. So it was there was a very different vibe, like the human potential movement. You know, there mm. were a lot of growth centers around London and, you know, Rajneesh was quite a big thing. So it was you know, it wasn't quite so odd as it as it is today. But, it but that's was... a weird thing. I'm just going to stop you there, even though I was asking you a question. Is it like it's at the same time, sort of personal development and well-being seems to be has never been bigger and never more mainstream. I think the yeah. difference, the difference between like late, late 70s Britain or like and the Rajneesh would be far but bigger like now everyone's gone to india everyone's doing an ashram everyone's yeah, yeah, yeah. like uh so yeah. but but these sorts of encounter groups seem to be different yeah yeah it was like you know i think the sort of concern with well-being and flourishing these days is a bit in terms of my history it's a bit pallid mm. you know, yes I, you know, the, the rajneesh thing it was like boot camp for for english men you know, pe people who've grown up with a rather sort of emotionally distanced, emotionally repressed, well, people like me, really, who I was, you know, I look back on myself aged kind of 19, 20, and I, what I see was, you know, someone who was very largely a clever prat, you know. Um, and then with the breakdown of my marriage and doing these groups, it was like really intensive emotional retraining in you know in feeling in honesty in communication i mean encounter groups were basically you know they were born out of you know a guru of this movement a guy called carl rogers 
operating in California, very influential. And my this guy who I was sharing a house with in Oxford had been to California and worked with Carl Rogers and done some in, you know encounter group training. I I think he was probably fairly his confidence exceeded his ability. But you know what he would do would be he would get a group of people in a room for a weekend, and nothing would happen. You know you could so often these groups would start with. 20 minutes of silence while nobody knew what the hell was going on or you know it's like this guy was supposed to be leading something but he wasn't leading it there was no structure and then people would begin to get frustrated and out of that something would emerge which mm. involved forms of human contact which were more open more challenging more intimate than normal you know there was a kind of breaking through particularly of the englishman do you remember in one of the one of the john cleese films i think it was a fish called wanda he had an american girlfriend Jamie. Mm. and at one point he looks at her pleadingly and says to her you have no idea what it's like to be english <laughs> and i was you know and i was you know john cleese who became a friend later on in my life um, and I, you know, I resonate completely with that, you know, English public school, rather repressed middle class parents. So, you know, the whole Rajneesh encounter group thing was it was like national service for mm. messed up, repressed English people, really. And very, very challenging. These encounter groups were very challenging. It's like the leaders have the confidence to let it go almost anywhere. You know, there were very few limits or, mm. you know, physical violence or whatever, it, whatever it might be. But, you know, in, in terms of communication and emotionality, it could get pretty wild and it didn't always work for everybody. But I was lucky and it worked very well for me. You know, it was it accelerated a necessary kind of growth for me. Wow, thanks so much. I think we might have to have you back on to exclusively talk about encounter groups uh, because uh, there's so much there. And then what we always ask our guests is the six different parts of lifefulness. This is where we've gone and looked at the one of the most established church and congregation building frameworks and then translated it in a way so that everyone can take part. So the first thing that we're going to ask you is uh, because at the center of uh, spiritual communities is a sense of ultimate meaning. People might call it God, the divine, whatever it might be. Uh, what's the ultimate meaning in your life? Well, it's very close. I like your idea of lifefulness. Brilliant. Another of my influential teachers or, you know, people who I've met who've left a deep impression on me. I used to be a friend of mine who's now a well-respected Buddhist teacher used to call me a bit of a spiritual autograph hound. <laughs> I'd, I'd go around collecting works of, yes, I've worked with Sogyal. Yes, I've worked with Mayazumi Roshi. I've worked with Ram Das. So, you know, this, this, this character in my autograph book is a man called Brother David. Mm. Brother David Steindl Rast. Uh, and I was working at a place in Devon called Schumacher College and Brother David came to be one of our visiting speakers, visiting celebrities. And uh, I've never forgotten the talk that he gave about spirituality or something or other in which he had a very sort of soft Austrian 
accent in which he said the first and most evident characteristic is aliveness. And it's just, I have to say it in that voice because it mm. just shivers down my spine. Aliveness. And I'd never connected, you know, my understanding of spirituality aside from Rajneesh was always rather sort of self-contained, rather holy, rather, you know, be, being sort of kind, whether you felt like being kind or not. You know, it, there was a sort of an enforced idea, a patina of spirituality. Whereas the idea of aliveness <laughs> was, you know, was extremely liberating for me. So yes, you know, it's like for me, aliveness, true aliveness, true authenticity. I mean, it's back to Carl Rogers, where he talked a lot about authenticity or what he called congruence, the level in which the levels of human being, the level of what's going on in you, the level of what you're aware of what's going on in you, and the level of what you're willing to communicate about what's going on with you are all aligned. When you meet someone like that, someone who like you know where you are with them, right? There's no side would be the Yorkshire way of putting it. There's no, you know, trickiness about what's going on. So I have a quite a, because I'm a psychologist, I have, yeah. I, begin, I don't end, but I begin from quite a personal view, which is around that idea of aliveness and congruence and um, authenticity and wholeness, I suppose. I don't have any sense of a, you know, I've long since abandoned any sense of religion or spirituality as about any kind of transcendent otherness. For me, I have a very proximal view of spirituality. It's about the quality of my life. It's about me being the kind of person I deeply like to be more of the time. Mm. And it's about expressing that and benefiting from that in the quality of my relationships with other people and the value of the work that I do in the world. Mm. Uh, thanks so much. So yeah, I, I, that idea of aliveness, I find that often when speaking to people, if you try to explain, well, well, how about secular spirituality? Or well, look, there's the feeling which feels like the divine or whatever it might be, of just like going, you know what it feels like when you feel truly alive. When was that yeah. last time you felt truly alive? And yeah. I think that's what's really interesting about, and then going, okay, well then, how can you build on that? How can you let that feeling teach you? Yeah. 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 And, and how can you, how can you, I mean, often it comes to you unbidden, like as a sort of accident or a benefice. But for me, what starts, what, where we might start to use the word spirituality or even religion is, and this is, this is a view that I've come to, is where those what I call glimpses of wholeness or openness or beingness where you start to want to consolidate those it's like you know this is i like the taste of this how do i stabilize it mm. how do i get it back you know because they're often very fleeting these that's hence my use of the word i gave a talk at the at the rsa which was around this concept of glimpses and I think, you know, I think we all have them. They vary in their duration and they vary in their intensity. Sometimes they're quite traumatic for some people. Sometimes they're very short lived. 
but you have that feeling when you're good about yourself, you're good in your skin, you feel close to others, you feel that sense of glowing aliveness. Mm. Aliveness doesn't have to be exuberant. It can be a quiet, it doesn't have to be showy offy, you know. And, and it doesn't even have to be happy. It sometimes. doesn't have to be happy. No, absolutely it, not. And I think that's one of the things, certainly when trying to communicate this, is being like, oh, it's, it, it is literally the same issue that people have when talking about Jesus, whether they go, oh, well, surely you talk about Jesus being the joy and the light. And the, then what about when we're sad? And it's that same issue of like going, no, you can have, you, we can cultivate this feeling of aliveness that we want to get to. But it doesn't mean you've got to be alive the whole time. But it also no. doesn't mean that when you're sad, you're failing or... Uh, and you are or that yeah. grief can't be a time when that is just a huge testament to what yeah. it means to be human yeah. and it gives you that frame on yeah. the pain oh, whenever i say anything that rhymes i'm always like oh my god that would be classic preaching moment you need a frame on your pain you know and it, it doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily any truer than any other sentence i said but the yeah. moment it's got a little internal yeah. rhyme you're like yeah. there must be something to that here's another entry in my, in my autograph book. This is kind of, you know, edited highlights, mm. action replays from my spiritual life. I, I remember going to a session with a Japanese Zen master uh, called, I've mentioned him already, Maizumi Roshi. The Maizumi Roshi? Maizumi Roshi, yeah. Sorry, I was just playing along. I don't know who he is. The Maizumi Roshi. He's, he's a big dude. He was in those days. And he came to London and he was doing something and he was doing Japanese calligraphy and just kind of dashing them off, you know, uh, and selling them. And I bought one and I said, what does this mean? And he said there was a, a Japanese poem and the Japanese poem. I've still got it somewhere in this workspace where I am. Um, uh, the poem said, quiet mind, happy, unhappy still quiet and it's that you know that's the that sense of quietness that sense of equanimity which is kind of peaceful equanimity which is also very alive it's not repressive at all which can underlie the ups and downs of your life so it is i i agree with you i think it's a that's an important shift i think when you see it's not about stabilizing moments of happiness it's stabilizing moments of well equanimity would be buddhist word for it but it is like it's a glowing it's a luminous equanimity not kind of phony holy yeah and and also there is that you will meet people like sometimes it gets called toxic positivity yeah, yeah where there can be that sort of like it seems almost like a desperate clutching at you know that oh, it's all okay oh well you know life doesn't give you any more than you can handle uh, yeah. life's not life's not working sort of uh, life's yeah. not happening to me it's happening for me whatever yeah. it might be it's like no, just yeah. yeah that was that was that that was one of the things Sanderson that led to my drifting away from the Rajneesh organization there was a sense that it was that you that you whatever whatever you were doing or feeling and you know you could be sad you could be angry you could be happy but it had to be exuberant mm. kind of tyranny of exuberance in Pune and it you know it wasn't all right you know there was a bit of me that wanted to hold on to a bit of Englishness 
and say, you know, isn't it also okay to be mildly pissed off, you know, yeah. raging and, you know, all of that kind of thing. So I wanted to reclaim my right to be mildly pissed off. Well, you just get, well, look, I've, my, my lip's not as stiff as it was, but I just think uh, just a little bit of starch in there, yeah, just a little bit more rigidity. Like, I'm not going full stiff, but I just yeah. want it to not be as floppy. Well, it doesn't even have to be repressed, but it means, you know, sometimes your authenticity is mild. Mm. You know, it doesn't have to be exuberant the whole time. But the whole Rajneesh thing was it's like breaking through a kind of carapace of mildness and politeness and civilizedness required an intensity, mm. of, you know, dancing or sex or raging or, you know, dynamic meditation, which he devised, which was very physically chaotic and, mm. and energetic. You know, which was great. It was great for me, uh, but it was great as a kind of boot camp. It wasn't a place to live. Yeah. It was a training course for me. Because it's also that thing of like, it's not, I think at Sunday Assembly, I'd see it when people would have seen me present Sunday Assemblies and then they would try to go and do it the way I do it or whatever it yeah, might yeah. be. And you're like, no, 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 that's not that's not the only way to do it. In fact, you've just got to go. And if you want to do it, there are some performers who are just amazingly still, yeah. you know, they're just quiet and their words just, and everyone's listening. Like, that is also great. It doesn't, you know, one person's, the way one person's psychology expresses itself physically and in yeah. the world then is not going to be right for everyone. And yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. I've realized now that normally what we do is go and ask, we ask the first one, ultimate meaning. And then there's five other questions, the five other parts of lifefulness, which <laughs> we just sort of somehow got into a conversation, which I've loved. So, and I don't want to uh, miss out on the thing which I really wanted to speak to you about, which oh, okay. not the, so much, but uh, this idea of embodied cognition. Because yeah. that is, uh, I read, oh, your book's got quite a clever title as the brain doesn't need the body as much as it thinks or the... Yeah, intelligence in the flesh, why your mind needs your body much more than it thinks. Yeah, there we go. It's and, quite clever, yeah. Uh, and yeah, and that was something which has been a book which is really interesting for me because we're particularly when trying to go and... <clears throat> take these practices into businesses, into other sorts of edu uh, organizations, you've sort of got to put it to them of like, well, if this is an idea, why can't we just go and send it out as a, you know, a, a PowerPoint? Why can't we just send an email? And that there's sure. so many different ways of knowing and ways of being, which come from our body working in concert with our mind. And in fact, your book made this the argument that we should like not even think of that difference between mind and body. So maybe after me doing some version of it, embodied cognition, Guy Claxton, bam. <laughs> what is it? What's it introduce people to this thing? <laughs> well, it's a kind of, it's, you know, I think we've, we've misunderstood ourselves, uh, particularly in the West. And, and we've, we've created, forms of cultural induction which lead kids to identify themselves with their rationality, their consciousness, 
it's like you know we're we've come to see ourselves as the tip of the iceberg without the rest of the iceberg which is a nonsense you know the tip only mm. exists it, it can only exist because there's a huge amount of it below the waterline or it's like you know a smartphone thinking that it's smart all on its own no sorry mate you're smart because of 4g you're smart mm. because of wi-fi they're only smart because of your connectedness and because of your substance so you know i think the movement around embodied cognition and embodied intelligence is scientifically based demonstrations of of that fact of our now i want to use the word remembering but i want to put a hyphen in it like we are remembering where oh, we're, nice. we're reclaiming our members you know our yeah. limbs our organs our what have you as being critical aspects critical facets of what it means to be human what it means to be intelligent it's interesting when i when i was thinking about preparing for this chat with you i was reminding myself that all all religions involve the body in one way or another whether it's you know i think christianity has lost a lot when people stopped kneeling yeah there was something in the kneeling there's something in putting your hands like that there's something you know a, a dervish's whirl mm -hmm. rajneesh had dynamic meditation buddhists sit on their cushions and watch their breathing or feel the pain in their knees or whatever it might be it's no accident that the spiritual practices uh, emphasis on the practice spirituality as practice rather than just as philosophy almost always involves some embodiment even if it's sitting quietly on a cushion you off very often your primary object of attention is the body so we are bodies we're built you know scientists are telling us we weren't built we didn't evolve to be thinkers we are we were evolved to be movers movers and shakers that's deep in our biological being and you can see that you know as i'm talking you can't you know you can see occasionally you'll see my hands on the screen because as i start to try and i become infused by trying to communicate my meaning my hands start going and my feet are tapping and i'm aware of a kind of energizing in my body and in my voice as i start talking about things that i care about so all of these things are not epiphenomenal they're not just accessories they are of the essence of what it means to be human and science is reminding us of that very forcibly in all kinds of really interesting ways and it's so weird that people have had to go to science in order to be reminded of this but when you go and look at it it's like people don't when people go to watch a football team they're not just sort of sitting there nice and still like if you told someone to sit and watch a football team and not move a muscle they <laughs> yeah. their minds would break yeah, and yeah. we and i think the reason particularly in and i think this is why it's so good to have this language on something that we've known for so long is that obviously in religion you do it because the moment you start to think about what's important to you like I'm, my arms are moving. Like, as you say, yeah. you just, it's this, sure. it's this deepest force within you. And and so obviously right. you're not just, you're gonna 
move up and down you're going sure. to well, in, in praying originally christian praying people would get on the floor it was a really sort of lying down and Pro doing pr it. prostrations yeah you know a very important part of buddhist or muslim practice you know all of that your example you you reminded me when you were talking about you know going to a football match and having to sit on your hands of some very nice studies that i i write about in Intelli intelligence in the flesh about in about gesture with children if you make if you ask children to try and explain their understanding of something like there's a famous phenomenon in psychology called conservation of volume where kids below a certain age don't realize that if you tip some orange juice from a tall thin glass into a short fat glass it's the same amount of orange juice they think the amount of it has changed and around about five or six years old they start to develop this conservation of volume this uh, this idea kids who are on the brink of doing that so you sit kids down and you and you do this little experiment with them and you talk to them about it and if you make them sit on their hands and not use gesture the their apparent level of cognitive development is less really and if they're allowed to move their hands around that is to say their gestures give evidence or are part and parcel of a burgeoning understanding which if you deprive them of the of the ability to gesture so for some example they analyze you know very fine video recordings so you're you may have a child who's on the brink of this kind of transition into understanding the trade-off between height and width in volume their mouth might be telling you that they're the same but their gestures if you look at their gestures are telling you that they're beginning to understand that height and width trade off mm. that, you know and that volume could be conserved teachers who are insensitive to these gestures are less effective teachers in other words this is not just an expressive thing it's a communicative thing and you know if we are, if we're not picking up on the meaning the aspect of meaning which is conveyed through our gestures and it's not just hand gestures it's voice quality it's posture it's all of that kind of thing if we're not sensitive to that then we miss out on crucial aspects of meaning again you know gestures are not just sort of they're not like an appendix they're not sort of evolutionary hangovers from when we were apes they actually carry different aspects of our understanding which amplify and enrich the whole picture of what we're trying to say and if you deprive me of gesture if you put me in a straitjacket i will be stupider and i, and I guess the other part which i really loved in, in this whole idea of embodied cognition which i thought was is that it's also and this is where the iceberg analogy was i think you you spoke about it actually looking at the body more like a uh, a fertile flor forest floor and in fact mm. by the time that we think our ideas they've been working their way through uh, our bodies for so long yeah. and certainly in my work uh, your book was really of like when thinking about these ideas of ultimate meaning of like what is the thing which is most important to you like what do you know uh you know, and even this does apply to religious people as well, because even if you've got this frame that you believe in God and uh, in whichever way that might be, people like go and 
pick out or up on different aspects of God. God is love, God is mercy, God is justice. Like you might have a different frame, but you're still finding your own uh, a value in the divine, which reflects your own value, just as anyone who doesn't believe in that. Like when we, when what is so important to us is fairness, means that at a really early age, you either saw unfairness, you yeah. saw the importance of fairness, and that was probably before you even had, yeah. you even had the word fairness. But it's these things yeah. which get coded into our bodies, and again, that's why your body is so important in these, uh, like in this uh, in this whole world that you've got to go and find ways to interrogate the knowledge which is already inside yourself. Yeah, I mean that's a big. There are so many aspects to this, you know, exciting rediscovery of the body of the of the lower bit of the iceberg for me one of the most exciting bits is exactly that that our sense of value our sense of importance of what matters to us is held viscerally it's 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 held in the body like the seeds of significance are in the depth or the shallowness of our breathing, are in the butterflies fluttering in our tummies, are in the muscular tension in our shoulders. Our whole bodies are the receptacles, are the where the storehouses, the warehouses of significance. Antonio Damasio talks about what he calls the emotional rudder or the visceral rudder which gives us a sense of value of what matters, what's important. And without that, you know, his Damasio's neurological research shows that without, if we lose that sense of, of being in touch with, with the visceral rudder, we are adrift, literally like a, like, like a boat that's lost its sails and that's lost its thing. We can't, we, we remain, I mean, what his experiments show, you can remain intelligent in an intellectual sense, but that intelligence becomes unhooked from intelligent action in the world. You could still score well on an IQ test, mm. but you behave stupidly, coarsely, crassly, self-destructively in your life. And you can't seem to kind of, you. it's like you've fallen apart if you don't have that core and then what you you know the bit of the book that i'm in a way most proud of because i think it's the bit of, of of the intelligence in the flesh book because it it it's meaningful to me and i think the image like you what you were calling the forest floor is very important that we we need to see our experience and particularly our conscious experience as having a time scale it's like I use the image of a fern unfurling. That's the forest floor. You know, if you imagine a time-lapse photograph of a fern that took three weeks to go from being nothing to being a huge fern and sped it up so that whole process happened in 500 milliseconds, it would look like a miracle. It would look like there was no fern and now there's a fern or there was no thought and now I'm wondering what's for tea. But actually, if we, if we develop a greater sensitivity to our own inner process, we can begin to sense this unfurling. And sometimes the unfurling is very slow. Sometimes there's a, what we call a gradually dawning sense of something. And sometimes it's so fast that we don't even feel 
the unfurling or sometimes we we shortcut it and we jump to conclusions and we sort of truncate the unfurling and then we become detached from ourselves because what we've ended up with is something that is sort of conventional and formulaic and stereotyped our, 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 it's like a cartoon of our reality is what ends up in consciousness because we've broken that chain that chain and that chain is our authenticity mm. that chain is our sense of truly saying what we embody and i think you know and i think there's something very important there and this sense of sort of interoceptive awareness of sensitivity to the fact that i am germinating you know i'm not just happening but i'm germinating and we can get better at that people who aren't good at that are handicapped in all kinds of practical ways in their lives people who have a stronger sense of interoceptive awareness do better deals on the stock market mm. it matters even at very humdrum levels let alone at the level of you know the the trustworthiness of your word you know a lot of a lot of us you know we're seeing it on television all the time people who are so detached from their authenticity that they may have replaced that with a sort of patina patina a veneer of superficial charm like boris johnson or god help us donald trump right but there is no sense of authenticity there's no sense this is a trustworthy person this is someone who has depth who has character you know and god help us the world needs more and more of this and thank goodness that it's possible to rehabilitate this sense of of inner connectedness this sense of 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 us unfurling of us occurring into the world and it's delightful you know there is lightfulness delightfulness in this because you constantly surprise yourself instead of having to be self-censoring all the time you say oh that was interesting I wonder why my hands just did that all of a sudden. Or I wonder where this this delightful pun came from, you know. Well, oh, hello, mind. Thank you very much. That was a nice one. Are you tired of Zoom meetings? Is working remotely making you feel remote? Then we know just the people for you to call. Us. Uh, all right, out of that uh, advertising uh, voice. Yeah, at The Lifefulness Project, we don't just talk about these ideas. We love to make them happen in person and to bring it to life in the real world. So just thought I'd let you know that if you're interested in how we could help out in your company, your team, non-profit or drug cartel, ethical drug cartel, then uh, drop us a line. Go to www.lifefulness.io forward slash contact hyphen us should have just been contact and we'll give you a free half hour consultation on what you can do. Covid has made us more. Oh God, I went into sort of like like posh English voices of standard advertising voice. Here we go. Oh, it's not yet there. COVID has made us more physically distant than ever, but there's lots you can do to create emotional connection. I didn't quite have it. Anywho, uh, like I said earlier, go to www.lifefulness forward slash contact hyphen us and contact us. Uh, we'd love to help in any way we can. All right, then. Thanks. And uh, back to Guy. Yeah. And I, I think that there's... And again, that the useful thing, but obviously the, the fact that the neuroscience has caught up on this is 
that it comes along with it's not just like oh well look, this is a science it's actually actually if you do things differently with your body if you start to look at how your body operates or if you just decide to as a group or as individuals whenever whenever i go into companies and i normally get told well that might have worked there anywhere yeah. else but actually coming here uh, you know, they're not really going to go and they're not going to sing. They're not going to meditate together. They're yeah, not going to yeah. walk around and pretend this. They're not going to do whatever else. And, you know, <laughs> actually, if you provided you're not bad, and I don't think I am, actually, people will do it because when yeah, it's done well and you actually are in this place, often a workplace where you are, you feel so disconnected. You feel yeah. as though you've, you've had to take yourself off and put on this fake person when you walk through the door by getting into the body by doing something which is different. You, you can't help but being, even that word you used, I loved it, visceral. Like, I mean, yeah. viscera, viscera is fucking gross. It is the <laughs> blood and guts and shit, which is in us all. And we use it the whole time but to feel something viscerally. It means you're like, you're feeling it. Like it is from deep within. And then how, like, how do you then go and translate this of like, okay, we are not just these, heads or on necks uh there's oh look i've got hands i've got a body like it's it's a part of me how do you then go and like translate that in to teachers let's say because that's where you're a real specialist what does that go and look like when saying right this i think way? another another important kind of dawning realization in my own learning has been the realization that to not feel like I read a, quote, a very good quote about this just the other day. I don't, I don't know if I'll be able to remember it. To not feel is costly. It's expensive. Mm. It takes energy. We're not we're not conscious of the cost. You know, you used the example of the stiff upper lip a little while ago. The way in which we use physical tension, we abuse our musculature chronically in order to not feel or in order to not show our feeling the stiff upper lip you know arose in order to stop your lip trembling when you were frightened going into battle you know if you stiffen, yeah. you stiffen your upper lip you can create the appearance or even the feeling you can numb yourself so you you know you can numb down not dumb down but numb yeah. but it takes energy to do that so when and, also, and i, I think, think i just sorry i was just gonna say that i like i uh, am not very good at being angry and there's a part of me which uh for a long time thought that was a good thing that you know you don't like it when being around angry people or maybe should i accurate uh, i don't like it when i'm around angry people for uh childhood reasons you know if you grow up in a house full of shouting you're just like okay well i'll be the nice person and not be angry but actually there's been times like professionally where something happens i'm like i should be really angry about that actually and it mm. would be useful if i was yeah. because then i might go and do the thing which goes and is the is actually the appropriate time to be angry and uh yeah so uh Sometimes when I go and read things about sort of tendencies of ADHD or whatever else it might be, it's like, you might have a very difficult time controlling your anger. I'm like, oh, no, I think I've controlled that out of existence. Uh, yeah. Must be re-examined. Right. So, but if you, you know, if you turn down the volume on your anger, 
I think just something's popped into my mind. I think it's a quote from Robert Browning who said, in our, oh, what was it? Can I remember it? It's, it's, it's exactly about that. It's like, you can't turn down the volume on the bad stuff without also turning down the volume on the good stuff. If you turn down the volume on your radio, you turn down the volume on the music as well as you turn down the volume on the static. Mm. So, you know, if, if, if this armoring, this physiological defense system that we throw up inside ourselves to protect ourselves from experiences that we construe as unseemly or threatening or gross or dangerous, you know, then that, that mutes or, or damps us. So, but, but, you know, so there's what I'm realizing as I'm talking is that there's two senses of this costliness to not be in tune with yourself. One is it's energetically, physiologically costly. And the other is it's experientially costly. It, you know, life becomes duller. Life becomes grayer. You know, if you mute your dejection, you can't but also mute your exuberance. Well, that, that's the odd thing that I'm not, I think that there are probably other things which have gone on. I can think of my own life where they're like, certainly the exuberance part, like I go and look at myself and probably ask other folk uh, that's, you know, of being able to take delight in things. I'm, I think that might be one way of dealing with it. You just like go and take out the height. You just don't allow mm -hmm. yourself to feel too much or too little. Uh, yeah. But I think in other times you might just be able to excise parts of it. It's, 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 it's Maybe. unhealthy, but in a, in a different Maybe. way, it's going to like go yeah, and, yeah. uh, it's going to go and play up in another area. It's It's not going to, uh, yeah. yeah. It involves yeah. maybe some disconnection in a different uh, sure. place. And of course, you know, we need, I mean, this is an obvious thing to say, but we need to bring some compassion to this. I mean, you know, I mean, we all create these forms of, of physiological self-abuse, but we needed to at the time. You know, yeah. you alluded to your childhood if you grow up in a noisy, chaotic, you know, I grew up in a family which was very repressed, very... You know, people people communicated via moodiness mm. in my family. So you know, you just learned that if you know you didn't want to press the wrong button in your mother, because she would, you know, she'd go crazy. She'd fly off the deep end if you broke through this consensus of you know we communicate our disapproval or our distress through a kind through withdrawal. You know, if you don't play that game, things don't go well for you. Yeah. You know, your your mother becomes mad. Yeah, that's know? the same thing that I had. It's this odd part of re repress of repressed uh, men and repressed yeah. people. Of um, yeah. I think there'll be other cultures which have it, but it's a certain type of British person oh. of just we're going to keep. I remember speaking to my dad once, and I said to him, I said. I think it'd be good if we spoke about this. He said, I'd find it easier if we didn't. And I was like, oh, <laughs> uh. <laughs> you know, when someone in all of my life, I've been taught well, what you do is you just go and you speak about it. And if someone says, well, I, I won't, you're like, oh, well, I've got, that's all of my weapons taken away. Uh, nice move. I, uh, 
yeah, just really didn't see that one coming. I guess we'll just we'll just not talk about it. And I suppose it is it is easier in a way. Uh, no, I think my 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 image for that. I don't know if this is a real memory, but it's a stereotypical memory of sitting with my mum and dad watching the television, and something comes on that is kind of uh, you know like someone is telling sexual jokes or or something or other you know something something that is disapproved of nothing is said but except but but then you know after after a fairly short interval mummy would say look at look at dad and say dad i think that can go off now don't you yes right and you just you know switch off yeah so it's yeah. like and that's what we do internally you know it's yeah. like we, we we do that switching off but it costs us our aliveness there is, a, there is a payment in aliveness. And if we get trapped, of course, you know, maybe strategically we have to do that sometimes. Sometimes it's good to be tactful. Sometimes it's good to be polite. Sometimes it's good to pull your punches. But when that becomes chronic rather than like an acute intervention in life, then, then it really does become costly, costly on our quality of life, costly on our aliveness. And so we, uh, this has gone all over the place, which I love. Uh, we were just speaking about like, what does this look like then in like in schools, in your situation where like in like, how can you take these ideas of emotional connection of this, of the fact that we're more than just our minds and, yeah. you know, go and put it into practice when so much of the world is saying, no, it's a lot easier if we just treat them as uh, sort of books to be written into. Well, the first thought that comes to mind, Sanderson, is that it's really hard because these beliefs, this sort of Western privileging of rationality, that mindset is literally cast in stone in our institutions, the way schools are designed, the way law courts operate, the nature of the medical profession, you know, those the, the structures of our society embody those assumptions and those priorities and those pro and those prohibitions. I'm sure there'll be some people listening who might think you've just said you're not saying that we should be irrational. What's the sort of what does non what, what does not being rational look sure. like in a good way? Well, I think my my image for that is. You know, the way in which, well, I mean, one contemporary image would be restorative justice, which is, which is happening in quite a lot of schools now. And I think it's a very good idea where you are actually, you know, people, the victim and the perpetrator actually have to meet face to face. And there is a real chance that there will be some recognition if not if not reconciliation some human touching which comes so some good comes comes out of that thing so you know for example in many traditional societies i know a little bit about maori society you know when there's a contentious issue the whole iwi the whole tribe will get together on the marae and they'll be there for days and nights they'll eat and they'll sleep in the marae and it's thrashed out 
everybody mm. has a chance to speak people some people's speaking carries more weight i like there's a maori polynesian concept of mana which is like this sense of personal authority which comes out of experience and authenticity you know when someone speaks mm. they may not speak often they may not speak loudly but when they speak you listen there's a sense of authenticity of wisdom of thoughtfulness in what they're doing where's that in the bloody law courts mm. where's that in the houses of parliament you know so it doesn't that's not irrational that's not going oh you know yeah 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 my gut feeling and letting it all hang out it's drawing on different ways of knowing which may be quieter or more which don't emerge they're like shy creatures those ways of knowing you know if you're busy arguing like the house of commons the ridiculous the farce of the house of commons or of a law court where in which you know the barristers their job is to who can out clever the other mm it's not to find the truth it's not to find justice it's who can win the case right so our institutions have developed a kind of institutionalized perversion and and that's happened in schools as well unfortunately you know schools should be places which are about learning mm. learning is about adventure exploration uncertainty packed with emotion what happens in school emotion gets pathologized oh you've got anger issues anger management issues so you need to go and do this that and the other you know school works well when emotion is invisible you know to come back to your point i'm not saying it's impossible and a lot of my work in education has been about how you work within those institutions to rehabilitate more of this sense of learning being adventurous and energizing and exciting how can we bring more of that back into the classroom but it's hard and it's when you were speaking about all these things because i sort of like go and talk about lifefulness of saying well actually what happens if you apply the principles you can see in a spiritual community in a in a school and actually that's that sense of aliveness of like what does it feel like for a workplace to be alive what and then you when you're speaking about the law courts or you know the houses of parliament like we it's so strange that we've taken for well we don't take it for granted so many people know that it's a joke that it has to be reformed that it's stuck that it doesn't, doesn't represent happen. it but you to, know, we know that but it doesn't happen but to, yeah and then to actually go and contemplate it on this thing, it's like that person's going to say that then the people behind them they've all agreed that they're not really going to express their opinion on the subject because yeah. uh you join you fight really hard to join because you've got really clear opinions then what you do is you've got to not express your opinions until you climb up higher in which case then you've got to really express your opinions less and then you get to the top and then you've actually got to go and do polls so that you can find out the opinions that you should have like it is not that connected to the body or like this sort of like sense of justice that we might have lurking within us yeah 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 so but that's where you know i think lifefulness and mindfulness are you know i like your initiative because i think mindfulness is an incredibly valuable mm. tool for developing that sense of inner awareness of authenticity of 
taking time to speak and to act from what is truly wholesome or truly valuable in you. Um, but it's often it often leads to a sort of rather quietistic philosophy of life. You know, it's like mm. you know the monk who walks around with a serene little smile on his on his or her face. You know, and so and I think you know that's why I was attracted to Rajneesh. I liked the exub the exuberance of it. It became a, I felt slightly tyrannical, but I liked you know I'm allergic to phony holiness. Mm. To that sense of which you often find in, in organized religion certainly in in you know the church of england uh, a kind of practiced calm well because is, also there there's been in the church of england there's been a bit of a rich well until the new evangelical charismatic yeah, yeah. christians came back there yeah, was yeah. quite a yeah, well, it's a bit embarrassing to really get into it. I even think it's fascinating with the Quakers. The Quakers were called the Quakers because they quaked. Yeah, yeah, and they, yeah. they were like, and uh, Robert, there's this one, I think it's in Litchfield. I can't, I've always, this story always speaks to me of Robert Fox, like one of the uh, early Quakers. He had this vision when he was quaking and he then ran out like i think maybe screaming or like he he had a vision of a town flooded with blood and then he ran across a field barefoot got into litchfield starting preaching that it was going to be denounced and then people started you know some uh like a, a, a house of friends there you're like that guy's probably not sitting down entirely in quiet the whole time i reckon <laughs> i reckon the spirit spoke to him pretty bloody strongly uh, I'm sure lots of the people listening to this will be the sorts of folk who are like, they already like love this idea of how can we go and take some of these things from spiritual communities and introduce them into work, into our schools, into our communities. What's some things that you've seen that people have done, which have been a good way of like, you know, just trying this stuff out because you don't want to be the person who walks in and goes, it's orange robes for everyone. No, no, of course. And it isn't about the orange robes. You know, I've, I've worked over the years with a, with a Buddhist school, you know, one of the, one of the very mm. few Buddhist schools in UK, the Dharma school in Brighton, you know, and it's been through phases where, you know, I mean, there's a real interesting potential and a real interesting challenge question it's like you know what is buddhism to little children what what could it be what what should it be and i've sort of lived you know lived with that question mm. as the school has grown and developed you know and it started out as being kind of like an ordinary very nice um liberal friendly primary school plus monks yeah <laughs> right you know so every often every so often the monks would come and they'd have their orange robes and they'd have their shaven heads and they would walk around looking serene and then the monks would go and then it was back to adding fractions and you know and doing all the other kinds of things so you know so you don't want you know kind of normal institutions plus a little bit of this that and the other it's a it's sprinkling like, of monks there a sprinkling of monks a little bit of monk tinsel <laughs> on the... <laughs> oh. <laughs> there's a, there's a, there's a, i can feel a, 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 a comic set coming up <laughs> <laughs> Bit of monk tinsel so so you know so what i try and do i mean my work in education which is the thing that i i also know a bit about the business world but mostly education has been to try and infiltrate some of this stuff quite at quite 
gently you know i don't talk about buddhism i don't even talk a lot about mindfulness although i might more as i get older but you know what i want to do is to show teachers that if you allow and encourage children to bring their aliveness their exuberance their adventurousness their intuitive intelligence to bear on the subject matter of what's going on in classrooms it could even be the boring old tudors or the boring old adding fractions but if you frame those things as an exploration as an expedition as a form of inquiry particularly if it's collaborative you get well first of all you might get a, a sort of a little bit of bumpiness to start with particularly if you have particularly in secondary school where you have kids who are simply not used to it they're simply used they've developed a kind of slave mentality they're used to sitting there being internally subversive and apparently submissive to what's going on around them so you might when you begin to open this up sometimes if you do you mustn't go too far too fast too quickly or you get some sort of shock waves but if you if you go gradually kids kids they just come alive with this kind of stuff they talk they argue they think there are degrees of intelligence of perseverance of imagination of questioning of ingenuity of creating products at the end of this process of exploration with a degree of craftsmanship that have a quality that neither they the children nor their teachers nor their mums and dads would have dreamt that they had if you create an environment you know and that could be about a mathematical proof mm. it doesn't have to be wacky subject matter but if you can bring your own learning aliveness to these things then learning comes alive for you and i think you know so a lot of my professional life has been how to bring that kind of aliveness through learning to rehabilitate the excitement the sense of responsibility for kids like can we do this maybe this is too tricky for us mm. should we give it a go even simple little things like getting teachers to change their vocabulary so there are two key words that can have a significant impact in a classroom one is tricky do you want to do something tricky today now that's uh. a feeling idea right do something tricky that's a bit of a challenge and the other is grapple a lot of people use the word grapple mm. so i'm going to give you something to do and you're really going to have to grapple with this one are you, do you think you're up to it? are you man enough are you yeah good? are you up for it and then most kids will go well try me yeah, this is more of a oh no so i think this is more of a year 10 problem do you think <laughs> do you think your year nines could deal with it <laughs> yeah exactly so you know so i think you know there is a huge amount of my trojan horse in education for bringing in a sort of proto spirituality is mm. to bring back a feeling of aliveness and adventurousness and camaraderie around learning even if it's something that is intrinsically not particularly meaningful of course if you can enrich what you're doing in the classroom with things that matter to the people in the classroom i was looking at a video the other day of a lesson a group of kids in like a poor inner city school 
who are doing a high stake, they're in the middle of doing a high stakes writing assignment on um, on campaigners, black campaigners mm. and activists. And they have to, you know, research it and, you know, and write a piece, write a biography around it. So there's a lot of precision, a lot of craftsmanship that they're learning, but the fervor and the energy and the the, the perseverance and the intelligence that these kids were bringing to this was astonishing. Absolutely, you know, it would blow, it would blow your socks off, you know, and, you know, that's a kind of aliveness worth having, I think, you know, and, and if we can give kids a taste of that when they're in school, even in, in the context of differential calculus, then maybe they'll live more fluid more juicy more flowing lives who knows it would be nice to think well i think that thing of even like if you were to ask i reckon 90 well a lot of business owners what they want it's like do you want people to come to work feeling alive do you want them to to feel that these problems matter to them do you want them to feel that it's an adventure do you want them to take job everyone would be yes sign me up yes 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 but it is that thing of like, what, you know, how can that actually be operationalized? Even that word is sound, makes it sound super gross, but it is yeah. that thing of like, you know, helping like that. And that's what's so inspiring. You've been doing it in schools. Yeah. Like what? It requires what, what we've discovered. Our latest school book is a book for school leaders, which revolved around a lot of interviews with uh, successful pioneering school leaders, head, head teachers. And one of the things we've discovered is that it needs, you need to be absolutely resolute about the kind of culture that you want to have. Resolute, detailed, persistent, but also patient. Like, again, it's like I was talking about this, un, this psychological unfurling. You have to see this as uh, a process. It's not just like, in comes the management consultant, he creates yeah. an engineer, you know, we're going to re-engineer the business and then off he, off he or she goes again. You know, this is something that needs growing, nurturing. It needs the intelligence of the horticulturist to nurture and to grow this, to, 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 to bring it to fruition. It takes two or three years, which is not very sexy for an ambitious person, you know, trying to make their mark and to make lots of money. You know, it's not it's not the sexiest idea mm. but it's the one that works great well look i'm gonna go and end it uh, on that uh, i like to end things <laughs> on uh, things which aren't sexy but work uh, that is uh, my wife's description of my lovemaking technique uh, and the, so are there places people can follow you uh, do you are you on twitter are you on uh, other places yeah, like uh, i i tweet i blog my website is guyclaxton.net so and it's quite active. So there's all kinds of things, you know, recordings of interviews. I hope we'll we'll put a link to this on on my website. Um, papers that people can read and download, and you know, and pointers to other communities, particularly in the education world, that people can you know get get involved with or sign up to. Um, yeah. So you know, there's there's things that people could do if they want to carry on Guy Claxtoning for a little bit longer. Uh, great. And so what I'm going to do, and the great thing is this can be cut. I thought it'd be really nice to give all of our guests a blessing. And so Guy, I'd like to say that the power by the power invested in me 
by myself. I would like to bless everything that you do uh, from for from here to whenever uh, it might be. I want you to keep on going and spreading your joy and love and delight. It has been it's always been delightful to be in your company. And whilst we are separated by Zoom at the moment, I can't wait to be in your physical embodied presence because it shines <laughs> and it is bright and it is delicious and gorgeous. And I want you to take that blessing and do whatever you think is most adventurous with it. I've got it, but I've got it, but I think my, my blessing to you is, you know, people bring this out in each other, don't they? You know, you bring it out in me, you, you, you shine very brightly for me as well. So uh, it's been a real pleasure and give my love to Imogen. Oh, uh, I really love that conversation. Uh, Guy is grey. I feel a bit bad sort of ending on him saying something very nice about me. But hey, ho, he said something nice about me. Well, maybe you didn't. Maybe you just said the uh, we got on. But I still like that because he's nice. So, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, I just really love how he is able to go and be super practical. Like he's, you know, he's made these ideas come to life in the real world with his Trojan horses and, you know, being able to go and stand in front of an educational conference and everyone nods along and goes, oh, yeah, Guy Claxton, Professor this. And at the same time, he was like some crazy, you know, Rajneesh Osho, uh, you know, commune man in the 70s and 80s. So, uh, yeah, what a super conversation. Uh, at the end of these, oh, one thing, uh, well, look, I'm, this still can be included. Yeah, at the end of these, there's always a bit where I sort of give an update on what's happening with the Life on This Project this week. Uh, also talk about our community and... Uh, and then the credits, which were, oh, that's the real reason you guys are here. Yeah, you, that's what you're after. Yeah, and so on the, what it's been like in the life on this project this week has been, yeah, I guess I've had this uh, idea that of just trying to get really good at what we're doing. Like, that sounds so obvious, but I think often, uh, particularly with my sort of ADHD brain, like I can go and get an idea and then I just bloody taste it it's like oh my god and they actually i did have this one idea which i i still sort of want to do but it's this sort of thing which in the past i've gone we've got to do this we've got this is it this is it and then i just decided no what you're going to do is you're just going to stick to the podcast get good at doing the podcast things get good at posting to social media what a delight that is to learn that skill and then to get good at like doing the small groups, you know, those, the community side, and then to get good at going and speaking to companies and, you know, setting up processes and funnels and Facebook pixels and all sort of stuff, which is like on one side, there's a bit of me, which was a comedian in the past, which sort of loathes myself for speaking about all these things. But, you know, that's like, there's a certain simplicity to it that I really like. And this understanding that, yeah, just get good at these three things. And once that works, then go and look at other stuff. And so that's been what it's been like this week. Yeah, so that's the update of what is happening in the Lifefulness Project. And then the next part is the community. And what's really great is that we are going to start the first small groups. So that's really exciting the, to go and take it from 
you know, ideas and talk and social media stuff to bringing people together, not in person, not yet, but in these small groups. And it's going to be really exciting to launch them. We're going to launch this one and we will be accepting uh, applications for the next cohort. So if you're interested in taking this a bit deeper in sort of creating relationships and like getting support and accountability and, you know, advice and being and really living these values and for being uh, in touch with people who really take this stuff seriously, then go to lifefulness.io forward slash membership and uh yeah then you can get involved like there's another part of it just like have i said there's too many ways to get involved but uh like that's that's what we want we are all about like you know turning this into action so uh that's it that's the membership part if you want to go and follow us discuss this let us hear from you go to the life on this project on facebook and instagram give us a follow like it, comment, say the questions that you had. Then the Life on This Project on Twitter. We're not yet alive on Twitter, so it's better to get in touch with at Sanderson Jones, at Croft Speaks. If you've got anything that came up for you, please go and ask us. Please share and all of those things. The only thing left to do is the credits. I always want to thank James Croft. Thank you so much for coming back from your holiday. It's wonderful just to know that you are available now. Uh, Mavs, thanks. Big up the producer. Big up. I never say big up. Uh, And then Will Andrews, thanks so much for the artwork. Roman Rapak and Miro Shot made the great theme music that you are listening to right now.